Joseph Stalin had been dead for three years when his successor, Nikita Khrushchev, stunned a close gathering of communist officials with a litany of his predecessor's abuses. Meant to clear the way for reform from above, Khrushchev's secret speech of February 25, 1956, shattered the myth of Stalin's infallibility. This is the way Harvard University Press introduces the book Moscow 1956, The Silence Spring, authored by Georgetown University professor Kathleen E. Smith. Here's the way Professor Smith views that important year in Russian history. Professor Kathleen Smith, your book, Moscow 1956, was about what? The book is about a year that was really a turning point for the Soviet Union. Um, And it's a year that I think in the West we associate mostly with the Soviet intervention in Hungary. Uh, But for a lot of Russians, that's kind of like the unhappy end to a longer story that started back in February of that year uh, with Khrushchev making his famous secret speech. Why did it take until 1989 for the speech to be printed in full in the Soviet Union? Yeah, that's a really interesting question, because uh, even though in the West we named it the secret speech, it actually wasn't such a big secret uh, in the months after it was initially given. Um, But it was a blockbuster in a way, because in it, the head of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union essentially called out his predecessor, uh, Joseph Stalin, and admitted uh, that some really grave and terrible things had happened under Stalin. So by doing that, having someone from the highest position of power do that, uh, it was a threat to the legitimacy of the Communist Party. And many of Nikita Khrushchev's comrades thought that he should never have made this speech, and they did not want to see it published. Tell us about it. So it stayed stayed under lock and key until Gorbachev uh, came around. Tell us about Nikita Khrushchev. Boy, Nikita Khrushchev is one of the most colorful figures uh, in Soviet history. Um, I was very fortunate to get introduced to him as an undergraduate. Not that I was an undergraduate in the time of Khrushchev, um, but my undergraduate professor, William Taubman, wrote this amazing biography of Khrushchev. And so when he was initially beginning his research, uh, he kind of, you know, got some of his students into this topic as well. And my subtopic was Khrushchev the man. And at first I thought, what, what does this mean? You know, why do I want to study him as, as a man? You know, he's this powerful leader. But he has a fascinating autobiography that in some ways encapsulates the, the Soviet story, that he was, you know, a lower class, semi-literate person at the time of the revolution and ended up the head of the Communist Party. So... This was a sign of how revolutionary change was and how for some people there was the possibility of huge success. Now for other people, right, it's a sadder story, uh, certainly. But Khrushchev was part of uh, the revolution. Go back to that secret speech. What were the circumstances of the 20th uh, Congress of the Communist Party? Yes. Okay. So uh, initially, the Communist Party had very frequent congresses in which they would discuss important policies, make big decisions. 
But under Stalin, because Stalin really cultivated a one-man rule, uh, these congresses have become very few and far between. So after Stalin's death, Khrushchev announced that we need to have this Congress and, you know, kind of set ourselves on this new path, having more orderly, uh, you know, kind of rule. And so for this Congress, they brought in uh, delegates from all over the Soviet Union. They invited foreign guests from various left-wing and communist parties. Uh, And it was really like two weeks of sort of speechifying, but, you know, with people delivering messages from the, you know, steel workers of Magnitogorsk and also talking about here's where Soviet foreign policy should go. It was kind of a big talk fest, I would say. But it was the first one without Stalin. So it was the new leadership trying to, you know, put their own spin on things. But the problem with that is that because Stalin was such a godlike figure, you couldn't really explain why you needed to do things differently without criticizing Stalin. And so Khrushchev wanted this to be a more critical Congress. This was very controversial, and ultimately the kind of critical speech he decided needed to be done, one that raised the topic of the purges, Stalin's repressions, uh, they decided it had to be done at a closed session of the Congress. So the secret speech takes place after the main action, and only for a select few. Did I read correctly and uh, that speech was given at midnight? No, it was not given at midnight. As far as I can tell, it was given uh, sort of mid-morning, which is good because it lasted for like four hours. So That's interesting because he, he – Exhausted. Uh, somebody reported that it was at midnight. Let me read uh, from the text that I have and get your reaction to it. V.I. Lenin made a completely correct characterization of Stalin. This is uh, Khrushchev's words pointing out that it was necessary to consider the question of transferring Stalin from the position of secretary general because of the fact that Stalin is excessively rude, that he does not have a proper attitude toward his comrades, that lie, uh, that lie is capricious and abuses, of, uh, his, and abuses his power. Um, he's saying this in, in the speech about uh, Lenin saying this about Stalin. Do you know the circumstances of why St- uh, Lenin was... <laughs> saying that? Yeah. Um, so uh, this document is often called Lenin's Testament. So this this was something that Lenin had written when he was already quite ill. He had um, a stroke and was incapacitated for several months at the end of his life. And his wife, uh, herself a revolutionary, uh, Krupskaya, was the one who was sort of the gatekeeper, who could see Lenin. And apparently she had told Stalin, you know, Lenin is not up for this visit, like you can't do this. Um, And Stalin persisted and was rude to her on the phone and so forth. And so uh, an angry Lenin uh, wrote this characterization. But he was also trying to steer the party, even as he was dying, right, to give his best advice over the question of who was going to be sort of the first among equals once Lenin passed. But really, I think the cleverest thing about it is that Khrushchev is using Lenin as almost a shield, as if to say, it's not me who says Stalin is rude and bossy, right? You know, Lenin said this, and Stalin may have been a godlike figure, but Lenin is the holy of holies. So, um, 
it was a way, I think, to set the stage for that criticism that was kind of grounded for Khrushchev in the idea of, you know, it's not that we're changing the party line or changing our path. We're just uh, going back to and highlighting our Leninist beginnings. So for Khrushchev, I argue that the secret speech was a way not to, you know, trample on communism, but to rejuvenate it by kind of sweeping away the most negative aspects of Stalin's rule. Put some of this in perspective. Lenin died at age 53 in 1924. Stalin was 74 when he died in 1953. What was the connection back then between Lenin and Stalin when he died, when Lenin died? Yeah, so, and I should say here, too, that I am not a huge expert on the early Stalin period, but I think it's fair to say that Stalin was also a longtime revolutionary. He was, you know, a very devoted member of the inner circle. Um, His position around the time of Lenin's death was really more of one of a top manager. That is that he kept tracks on, you know, personnel. If we, you know, we need somebody in Voronezh or we need, you know, an engineer or we need, you know, uh, someone who can be a good prosecutor, that Stalin knew his people. And because he was in charge of a lot of personnel decisions, you can also imagine that he built up a network of people who felt that their career advancement depended on him. So he was part of the system, but he wasn't, you know, seen at that time as like a charismatic leader or maybe even as a natural replacement for Lenin. How would you describe Marxist or Marxism, Leninism? What does it mean? Um, well, uh, well, that's a big question. Um, I'll give you the very short version. <laughs> uh, so Marxism, of course, is a theory of economic determinism. That is the most important thing is the nature of the economy and so forth. And so Marx, uh, writing about uh, world history, saw a natural progression of stages, the next to last one being advanced communism, and then subsequent to that was, or sorry, advanced capitalism, subsequent to that would be communism. So Marxism-Leninism, I think, is what happened when Marxist theories come to life in a backwards peasant country. The revolution was not supposed to happen in Russia first. It was supposed to happen in Germany or England, someplace with large numbers of industrial workers and advanced machinery and highly literate populations. But Lenin is the one that goes first. And so Marxism-Leninism kind of comes up with the idea that with a vanguard party, you can transform a peasant nation uh, into a communist nation that you're going to do this development uh, under a temporary strict government, which he called the dictatorship of the proletariat, so the dictatorship of the working class. In practice, what it means is the Communist Party rules in the name of the workers' interests, but without actually asking the workers' interests, right? And, of course, they never do get to this utopian communism. Back to the speech. Um I'll read some more of what uh, Khrushchev said during the speech. Stalin acted not through persuasion, explanation, and 
patient cooperation with people, but by imposing his concepts and demanding absolute submission to his opinion. Whoever opposed this concept or tried to prove his viewpoint and the correctness of his position was doomed to removal from the leading collective and to subsequent moral and physical annihilation. How many people did Stalin kill? Well, I think we'll never know that exact number. Um, I think we know that uh, in terms of people being arrested and formally prosecuted, executed or sent to the gulags, you know, we're talking in, uh, you know, in the millions. So certainly more than one million. But um, if you look at Stalin's wider policies, such as the way that he treated the peasantry when he carried out collectivization, the disruptions of that, uh, the famine that he allowed, you know, to play out in Ukraine, you know, we're talking millions and millions. But I think in this speech, Khrushchev was not so concerned with, say, famine victims or the, you know, the so-called kulaks, rich peasants. What he was really talking about were people who had been arrested, accused of being traitors, counter-revolutionaries, spies for the Japanese or the British. Um, And a lot of those were people like him. They were actually loyal party members who kind of ended up on the wrong side of political arguments. And he saw those people as innocent victims, and he wanted to use the speech in part to rehabilitate them or to clear their way for their reintegration into life had they survived. You know, maybe they had you know, been in the gulag or been in exile. Do you know how many people would have been in the auditorium when he spoke? Um. Gosh, you're, you're, you're hitting me with lots of mathematical questions here. Um, how many delegates were, you know, I would say it was probably around 1,500, but that's probably not an exact number. But the delegates, I mean, again, the Soviet Union is an enormous country. And so each region, I think, had, you know, a delegation of maybe six to eight people. It depends on the size. Uh, so really, it was a huge variety of people, all people, though, who were seen as loyal communists, even if they weren't members of the party, they were people who were outstanding workers or military figures or had some you know, level of fame associated with them. Do you know what the reaction was in the room? Boy, do I wish I knew exactly what the reaction is. You know, if we could do time travel, that would be one of the first places I would go, would be to see uh, what people's reactions were. I scoured uh, the literature, memoirs, every source I could find to try and get a sense of what that atmosphere was like. And I think that it was such a moment of emotional pressure that people definitely remember it differently. But overall, I would say, I think that the room was remarkably quiet. That is that for the most part, people sat there astonished, you know, soaking up every word, trying to understand what this meant to have a huge reversal in the evaluation of Stalin. Now, when they left that room, right, some of them are also silent because at this time, this was a closed speech. You weren't allowed to go tell people what you had just heard. 
And yet, surely the desire to discuss among themselves would have been really overwhelming. A little bit of a twist on what you said earlier from the speech. This is, again, the, the words of Khrushchev in the speech. Lenin used severe methods only in the most necessary cases when the exploiting classes were still in existence and were vigorously opposing the revolution when the struggle for survival was decidedly assuming the sharpest forms, even including a civil war. And it leads to the question, was Lenin repressive at any time when he was in the leadership? Oh, Lenin was definitely repressive, you know, when he was in the leadership, Um, in part because the revolution stood on such shaky ground. Uh, The Bolsheviks, even though that party means the majority, they were, in fact, the minority among social Democrats. So even among sort of people sympathetic to socialism, they were sort of a small, extreme group. Uh, In many ways, we can think of the revolution as as looking more like a coup, I think we would say nowadays. Um, So simply to stay in power, they fought a civil war. They arrested people who they assumed to be natural enemies, uh, wealthy people, members of the nobility, etc. And the first concentration camp in the Soviet Union uh, in the Solovki Islands was started under Lenin. So, yes, Lenin was a ruthless leader, undoubtedly. But I think that from the quote that you read, the point that Khrushchev is trying to make is that, you know, yes, there was a time when the revolution was in danger. We had real enemies, and we really did have to, you know, use all means possible to fight them. But now, you know, 1956, the revolution has been around for almost 50 years. We are not in that position anymore. So why should we think that, you know, now we have to fight real enemies? And this is kind of a pushback against Stalin. So you mentioned Marxism-Leninism. Well, I would say between like 19, probably 1930 and 1956, there was Marxism-Leninism-Stalinism. And one of Stalin's ideas had been that the closer you get to communism, the more fierce uh, the opposition is. And so Khrushchev really reverses that idea and says, no, now we can trust people more especially young people who've grown up under communism. If you go to the Spy Museum here in Washington, you can see what is supposed to be the ice pick that killed Trotsky. (laughs) Uh, I don't know whether you've seen it or not, but the reason I bring it up is put Trotsky uh, in context in these times. And, uh, of course, he was killed in Mexico, and you can tell that story. But uh, what's the difference between being a Trotsky follower and, say, a Stalin follower or a Khrushchev follower? Yeah, so I would say that, you know, if we kind of take ourselves back in time to the 1920s when, you know, the, the revolution is succeeding in the sense of they're finally being able to wrap up the Civil War, and now they can get to the real matter at hand, how do we build socialism, that they were really making a lot up as they went along. Uh, You know, Marx did not leave a handbook. What do you do after you make the revolution? Um, And so there were a lot of very controversial issues, including, for instance, could you have a revolution in just one country? Because Marx's theory had been once the revolution started, the workers of the world would unite. So initially, the Bolsheviks expected that, you know, especially with World War I ending, that Germany would have a revolution, Hungary would have a revolution, and so forth. They wouldn't be alone. 
So, you know, Trotsky, Stalin, uh, Nikolai Bukharin, another important uh, thinker in that time period, they were really arguing very intensely about what was the best way to build socialism and what they had. That is just this one isolated country that was making the effort uh, at revolution. So, um, you know, Trotsky is part of one faction, Stalin another. There's personal rivalries and so forth. Um, But these political rivalries are increasingly resolved, not as Lenin would have allegedly done it through, you know, argument and and debate and persuasion, uh, but instead through harsher measures. And so Trotsky famously is part of that, that he is um, removed from his positions. He's exiled to Central Asia. Ultimately, he really needs to flee the Soviet Union. He washes up in Mexico, and even there, he's not safe from the long arm of the Stalinist secret police um, who see him as a rival and, you know, allegedly are behind his assassination with the ice pick. Did they ever determine who actually killed him? Well, yeah, I think they caught the fellow that killed him, um, you know, who was uh, a a Mexican communist who was recruited for the job. But um, I don't think there's any doubt that that assassination is linked back um, to the Soviet Union. What do you teach at Georgetown? Oh, I uh, I am very lucky. I teach some wonderful students. Uh, I teach them Russian and East European politics, and I also teach seminars on the development of law, uh, on protest in contemporary Russia, um, yeah, sort of a broad set of topics, both about the history of socialism, but also about contemporary Russia and Eastern Europe. Where did you get your education? So I mentioned I studied as an undergrad with uh, Bill Taubman at Amherst College, and I got a Ph.D. in political science at University of California, Berkeley. Um, was lucky to do my first research during the Perestroika period, which was a very exciting time to be in Russia. Anyone that wants to see and listen to Bill Taubman, uh, you go to our archive, and there are interviews that we've had in the past. He appeared on, on book notes and discussed uh, Khrushchev at the time. Um, Back to the the circumstances uh, in the early 1900s, when did the Soviet Union, with what is, I think it's 15 Commonwealth countries or whatever, when did that come together instead of just Russia? I mean, the other, you know, the Kazakhstans and the the Ukraine and all that. So uh, before the revolution, Russia had been an enormous empire, included Poland, Poland. modern-day Finland, Central Asia. Uh, The revolution takes place in 1917 uh, after some very stressful years in World War I. And at that time, uh, a lot of uncertainty is introduced into what the borders will be of this post-Russian imperial state. Um, We know that Poland and Finland, for instance, both are independent countries Uh, afterwards. Uh, There's questions about whether Ukraine will be an independent country or not, Uh, Georgia, Azerbaijan. Some pieces of the former Russian Empire were ready to seek a form of independent uh, statehood. But uh, the Bolsheviks were ultimately able, through persuasion, persistence, you know, resources, some amount of coercion, Uh, to create essentially a new empire with Russia at the center, 
but containing many of the territories of the old Russian Empire. So the now independent states of, say, you know, Tajikistan, uh, Kyrgyzstan, those didn't have the same kind of modern statehood or, or borders that they have now. They essentially had been in the Russian Empire for a long time and passed into the Soviet Union. And then after 1991, they kind of had independence thrust upon them and become modern states with these borders that came from the Soviet period that were not always very you know, well-drawn or very accurate, um, matching the ethnic groups on the ground. How many of those former countries in the Soviet Union uh, marches to the uh, dictates of uh, Moscow today? Well, some certainly don't. I think uh, the three Baltic republics, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, are very firmly uh, independent and very firmly embedded now in Western institutions and NATO, the European Union. Um, Ukraine is in the midst, right, of a painful you know, battle, ongoing battle with Russia. They certainly, you know, have very different views and an independent policy. Um, You know, other states, it's kind of a mix. You know, one can look at a country like Georgia, very independent, uh, has some border issues with the Russian Federation, has a relatively democratically elected government, and yet very economically intertwined with Moscow, which maybe prevents them from being 100% independence. Um, you know, some other countries are maybe tilt towards Russia at various times because of their other conflicts. So Azerbaijan and Armenia in conflict with each other. So it's helpful to them if they can have some patronage from Russia, maybe causes them to tilt in that direction. Here's some more but from I, the... That's, that's a big, long topic. We, we yeah, I'm sure. Come to your class. Um, exactly. Here, here's some more from the secret speech of 1956, February of that uh, month of that uh, year. Uh, this is Khrushchev again. Uh, when we look at many of our novels, films, and historical scientific studies, the role of Stalin in the patriotic war appears to be entirely improbable. Stalin had foreseen everything. The Soviet army, on the basis of a strategic plan prepared by Stalin long before, used the tactics of so-called active defense. That is, tactics which, as we know, allowed the Germans to come up to Moscow and Stalingrad. What's he getting at there? Yeah, Khrushchev here is really pushing back on the idea that Stalin was this sort of all-knowing, far-sighted genius who never made any mistakes. Uh, and he's really picked a topic that is so important to the Soviet people at that time, which is the way that World War II had spun out uh, on Soviet territory. So we know now that Stalin did have warnings from Western intelligence and other sources that the Germans were about to attack the Soviet Union uh, in June of 1941, but he disregarded that. He did not accept that that could be true. Uh, in part, you know, the Soviets had signed this Molotov-Ribbentrop a peace pact with Germany, a pact of non-aggression, where they had agreed not to attack each other. And Stalin had seen that as a way, hopefully, to not get entangled in the war that was going on, uh, you know, in Europe. Um, but his unwillingness to believe that led to 
some catastrophic early losses for the Soviet Union with their aircraft being destroyed on the ground uh, with sort of mass disorganization and flight and, you know, really rapid conquest of territory um, by the Germans. And Khrushchev at the time of World War II was a leader in Ukraine, which is, you know, one of the territories that first felt the brunt of the German uh, invasion. And so he personally, I think, felt, you know, the pain of that policy mistake because he had to, you know, deal with these crushing defeats and um, retreats uh, from Ukraine in that time period. As you know, Stalin died in 1953, and this speech was in 1956. What happened to the leadership in uh, the Soviet Union between 53 and 56? Yeah, that's a really uh, interesting question, I think. Um, So when Stalin dies in 1953, even though he was, as you mentioned, 75, which is a fairly advanced age for someone in that time period, um, it really caught his heirs unprepared. That is, they were not able during Stalin's lifetime to ever have a frank discussion of what will we do someday when, you know, when this happens. And so initially there was, uh, I would say, kind of a collective non-aggression pact of their own that, you know, all right, Stalin is dead, but let's agree that we're not going to have a lethal struggle to the death here, that we're somehow going to try and restore a more collective form of rule. Now, I should mention there is one exception, and the exception is Lavrenti Beria, the head of the dreaded secret police. Uh, who was part of this top leadership group around Stalin, he already in the summer of 1953 is removed from office and removed in a very Stalinist way. That is, he's arrested. He's accused of having been a British spy during the revolution, uh, of having uh, raped numerous women and committed all sorts of misdeeds. And he is tried in secret uh, and executed. But the rest kind of stay together and sort out peacefully this question of who's going to hold the position of general secretary of the party, who's going to hold essentially the presidency of the country. Um, and that really is the last, you know, sort of internecine killing. Uh, Khrushchev loses power in 1964, you know, but he's sort of sent out to pasture in retirement. He's not executed or imprisoned or you know, stripped of all his possessions or something. In the speech, um, he says this is this unbelievable suspicion was cleverly taken advantage of by the abject provocateur and vile enemy Berea, or Beria, mm-hmm. excuse me, Beria, who had murdered thousands of communists and loyal Soviet people. Uh, w- what role did he play when, when uh, Stalin was in power? So as the head, you know, of the secret police, he was definitely intimately involved in these very unfair, you know, arrests, executions, and so forth. Um, He was, you know, the henchman, the the person who carried out the purges uh, in the technical sense. Now, Stalin went through a number of heads of the secret police. Barry was just the final one. Um, But I argue in the book that Khrushchev, by scapegoating just a very few people, 
Stalin's fault, Beria's fault, uh, in a way was trying to really limit criticism. That if we could just point to these, you know, few, you know, mentally ill or misguided, you know, evil people at the top, we didn't have to ask ourselves, how did the system allow this to take place? Why weren't there any checks and balances? Why didn't somebody correct Stalin or, you know, fire Beria? In the speech, um, this he even brings up Khrushchev even brings up the Stalin's short biography, and the speech reads one of the most characteristic examples of Stalin's self-glorification and of his lack of even elementary modesty is the addition of his short biography, which was published in 1948. Um, did have you read the short biography? I have. Uh you know, admittedly a long time ago, but it was a canonical text, you know, think Mao's little red book, only this one is just all about, you know, Stalin. Um, so it was something that, that school children would have read, people would have almost learned by heart, uh, sort of rote learning in the classroom. Uh, and it was a very sort of simplified and in places very biased account uh, of the revolution and so forth that gave Stalin undue credit for some of the successes. Um, and uh, I write a whole chapter in the book about uh, one historian who is part of being sort of tasked with rewriting school textbooks. And one of the objects of their attention is this short course. And they want to create, you know, a history curriculum that isn't focused on the individual but that's more Marxist. And if it's more Marxist, it has to be about classes and not individuals. In the book, it refers to uh, Stalin um, as an infallible sage. Uh, another quote, the greatest leader. And this is Khrushchev reading this to his audience. Sublime strategist of all times and nations. A man into a, uh, an example of making a man into a godhead is his uh, reference to this short biography. Um, when did, how many times have you been to the Soviet Union? Um, the first time I traveled to the Soviet Union was 1986. I didn't know then that there were only five years left of the Soviet Union. Um, so I went a few times before the Soviet Union fell. Uh, and since then, I've gone. Uh, almost annually, not always, um, and COVID has really, unfortunately, been a big obstacle of late. But uh, I did get a glimpse of the Soviet Union before it fell apart in '91. What did you see back then before it fell? Well, I um, think for Americans uh, visiting the Soviet Union, the thing that stood out the most probably was. Um, the economy of shortages and scarcity, you know, it's, it's, it's not a myth that people stood in line to buy things that to us are not luxury items. So we saw that uh, a lot of sort of conformity, you know, think of those sort of standardized apartment buildings. We used to call them like Lego buildings because they look like they'd just all been put together from the same set of Lego bricks. Um, so there was kind of a leveling. You didn't meet people who were really rich. You didn't meet people who were really poor. Um, you just met people who seemed sort of middling poor, uh, I'd say. Um, definitely a lot of propaganda in the old sense, posters, 
slogans. Um, the television news was very scripted and very dull, even in 1986, even though Gorbachev had been in power for a year. So it definitely felt like uh, a different system, a different economic and political system uh, from the United States. In the speech, and this, um, I wanted you to get into what happened during Khrushchev's time and after that with the people that run the uh, Soviet Union and now Russia. In the speech, he says, we should, in all seriousness, consider the question of the cult of the individual. We cannot let this matter get out of the party, especially not to the press. It is for this reason that we are considering it here at a closed Congress session. The cult of the individual, what's he getting at with that, and how does that compare with Mr. Putin? (laughs) Yeah, so the cult of the individual or cult of personality, it's sometimes translated um, using that phrase. It really matches exactly what you just read a few minutes ago, these kind of exalted, almost ridiculous titles, um, people just abasing themselves or praising him. Uh, You know, if you had been there in 1953, uh, every book that you read would have quotes from Stalin. His portrait would have been everywhere. Um, It really was almost a cult-like situation where here was a person who was not only above criticism, but who was deeply admired, and that admiration was expressed in the movies, in songs, in the stories children read in school, and so forth. So I think that with the secret speech, Khrushchev, in a way, is saying, like, look, this went too far. This is not who we are. We, you know, we're Marxists. We don't believe in gods or demigods. We can't have somebody who's above criticism or who's seen as, you know, the final word on every subject that goes against our initial principles it was a mistake and we need to rein it back in now, i don't want to say that khrushchev loved criticism <laughs> he actually is not very tolerant of criticism either that may be true of many of our political leaders but there was never a cult of khrushchev you know where people you know showered him with with you know ridiculous amounts of praise in fact i think in the west you know we definitely see khrushchev as a bit more of a comical figure you know he's uh, he tended to speak first and think later sometimes, the banging of the shoe. You know, he was not this cool, collected, Stalin-like figure. Um, but really, uh, from that time forward, I think that there was wariness of having a cult. But you asked the question about Putin. So is there a cult of Putin? I think it's technologically impossible in the modern age to have the kind of cult that you had in the Stalin era. You know, unless maybe you're North Korea and you're just, you don't have any internet and you're shut off from the world. But uh, trust me, you can go on the internet today and Google Putin and find a million ridiculous memes, people poking fun at him. You can, you know, go to Navalny's website and see, uh, you know, these snarky documentaries outlining uh, corruption uh, among that regime. So there certainly isn't uh, that kind of, you know, monolithic cult that there was in the Stalin period. 
But that said, you know, do Russian people appreciate a strong leader and identify, you know, this strong leader with the state itself? I think the answer to that is yes. And Putin is a great example of that, that he came in after Yeltsin, who was, you know, perhaps the only real Democrat. Well, maybe Gorbachev was halfway a Democrat that the, that the Soviet Union ever had. But democracy is messy, you know, and he was not seen as a strong leader and the state was crumbling under his rule. So Putin was really seen as restoring uh, a level of civility, control, organization um, to Russia. And I think he's still admired for that. I think Russian people are very afraid of chaos. And so they might not like everything about Putin, but they would like chaos. Even o- over the years, how many of have you met any of the leaders in Russia? I have been to a conference with Mikhail Gorbachev, but I have not personally met the leaders of Russia, no. And in fact, I don't consider myself a specialist on the leadership per se. I'm much more interested uh, in my own research in how these big changes affect other people in their lives. Were you able to to see some archival material when you've been to uh, Moscow or or Russia that um, you hadn't that we haven't seen before? And did you use any of that in your book? Yes, I did. Um, I started working on this book in the early 2000s, which was still a pretty good moment for archival access. Uh, Things opened up a bit in the 90s, but their declassification is kind of a slow process. Um, There really is not very much ongoing today. But so I did get to access uh, the archives, see, for instance, you know, you can see like the the booklet in which Khrushchev's secret speech was printed. But what was most interesting to me in the archives was actually reading the records of local party cells or local institutions. So I write in the book about young university students who get in trouble for taking this message of, oh, now we can criticize things. We won't have the cult of personality anymore. They kind of take it farther than Khrushchev meant them to take it. So I read a lot of transcripts where uh, students were speaking out at meetings, and then later sort of being shut down uh, by the authorities. In the speech near the end, he says, uh, Khrushchev says, it is especially necessary that in the immediate future, now this is 1956, we compile a serious textbook of the history of our party, which will be edited in accordance with scientific Marxist objectivism, a textbook of the history of Soviet society, a book pertaining to the events of the Civil War and the Great Patriotic War. Was that done? Uh, no. <laughs> yeah, no, that was not really successfully tackled. And part of the problem is that so many people have been written out of history, like Trotsky. Uh, Khrushchev didn't say everything Stalin did was fine, and he didn't say everyone that we criticized was, a, was an innocent victim. So you could not, after 1956 and, say, before 1986, you know, suggest that maybe actually Trotsky was a really good military leader and he had some, some sharp ideas. Uh, so the fact that there was still, you know, this sort of unwritten rules about what you can't do is partly what made 1956 a really momentous year because it's a year in which some people take Khrushchev seriously 
and try and push forward with this sort of thing, and other people are still pushing back. When, um, and ultimately, the lesson, I think, after Hungary is that, oh, if you give people too much free reign, then you might have this, you know, attempted overthrow of the communist system, and that can't be allowed in the Soviet Union. As you know, you can go to Red Square today and go to the Lenin um, tomb, uh, and he died in 1924. Uh, when Stalin died in 1953, uh, how close did he come to being... Uh, put in the same area as Lenin? He actually laid side by side with Lenin. Uh, they changed, you can f- still find these, uh, you know, some pictures from the time period between 1953 and I think it's 1961 when Khrushchev has him kicked out of the mausoleum, where the mausoleum, instead of saying Lenin, said Lenin and Stalin. So initially he's, he's put in there with, uh, with Stalin. Where do you find Stalin now? So now Stalin is buried um, sort of nearby to the mausoleum. Uh, there's sort of a grassy area by the Kremlin walls where some other famous revolutionary figures uh, are buried, and Stalin is among them. There's like a marble pedestal with a bust of Stalin on top of it. Why do they still have the mausoleum with Lenin there, and do they still believe in what he was uh, preaching back in uh the early 1900s. Yeah, I think that, you know, honestly, Lenin is increasingly becoming a forgotten figure. You know, if you asked Russian school children today, like, who's Lenin? I think you'd get a bunch of, you know, probably not very sharp answers. Um, you know, he, he and the whole history of the revolution is kind of problematic uh, for Putin. Putin doesn't want to glorify revolutionaries. He himself does not like revolutionaries. Um, So I think Lenin is definitely a bit downplayed, if not written out, uh, of modern history. But why is he still there on Red Square? Uh, You know, it's a very controversial topic. There are definitely lots of people of the older generation who still think that, you know, late communism was the best period of their lives when there was no inflation and salaries were paid on time and there was full employment and so forth. So I think there's partly a thought, you know, why rile people up, you know, by undoing uh, this burial? Uh, There's other people who, you know, say, well, but look, you know, Lenin himself didn't want to be buried in a like an Egyptian pharaoh, you know, on Red Square. He wanted to be buried next to his mother or something. So there's various ideas about what to do with Lenin. Um, but I think uh, I think say nothing, do nothing is kind of the, the policy right now. Uh, near the end of the speech, um, he makes this comment. He says he wants to restore completely the Leninist principles of Soviet socialist democracy. What does that mean? Yeah, so <laughs> I mean, I don't want to it would be an exaggeration to say that Lenin was a democrat. He's not a democrat in the sense that we think of that word. Um but uh they did want to and have always held elections in Soviet Russia and up to the present day. But the idea was that only the right people could vote, you know. So if this is a workers, you know, 
state, we need workers and people who embrace the revolution uh, to vote. So Khrushchev, in effect, going back to those roots and saying, you know, we need to hear the people's voices, we need to respect them. But the way they constructed democracy was very unusual. It was almost like a pyramid-type thing where, you know, very local units would elect the next person up, and then you'd take that level, and they would elect the next person and the next person and the next person. So when you got to the top of the stack, you know, like Nikita Khrushchev is the, is the head of the party, he's only elected by the Politburo, the presidium, those people around him. So it's a very diminished form of, of democracy that kind of like, you know, led, I would say, to manipulation. So to say we're going to go back to socialist democracy, I think what it really meant was you know, we're not going to kill people who express differences of ideas within the party, but democracy is sort of something that takes place within the boundaries of people who are loyal to Marxism-Leninism. Final, in, in the copy that I have of the speech, uh, the final sentence says, uh, Nikita Khrushchev says, long live the victorious banner of our party dash Leninism, and then in brackets it says tumultuous prolonged applause ending in ovation all rise uh i don't have any idea who wrote that but does that uh does that sound like something that you've uh, researched yeah i will say that um it was very much the habit uh when you read the transcripts of of speeches given uh in the soviet period that they would write in you know uh sort of like you know murmuring in the hall or stormy applause so they definitely let you know you know what what's meant to be the reaction um so was there stormy applause probably you know i think people were were trained to applaud the leaders and here's khrushchev you know finishing off no doubt with a huge flourish this very emotional speech um despite what to us sounds like stilted language um and I think he's also reassuring the party members in a way by saying, look, our criticism of Stalin doesn't mean that we're giving up on communism. We're not trampling on the banner that we've flown. We're, in fact, if anything, rising, raising it higher with more pride because we've taken this really difficult and brave step you know, of admitting to ourselves that mistakes were made. But you kind of see how it sets up the next debate. So if we've admitted it to ourselves, how much do we have to admit to everybody else, you know, that we've had this reevaluation? Um, and that's part of what made 1956 a difficult year is that the word about the secret speech leaks out. They make a decision to read it out to other Communist Party members. Um, but as you said, they don't publish it inside the Soviet Union. The copy gets to the West, so we know what it says. I actually the people there can't read it. I actually saw um, a... Uh confidential State Department memo. Uh, it was actually written March 22nd, 1956. And all all it says is, as first exposed by the Western press, speech presumably characterized Stalin as, one, a sadistic tyrant ridden in his later years by uh, persecution phobia, two, megalomaniac who rejected expert advice, Three, vain egotist who ordered history rewritten to glorify himself, etc. Criticism has been focused on ill effects of one-man rule, not on the basis of Soviet policy. And uh, that took him a month at the State Department to uh, write that to uh, as an internal. Mm -hmm. uh, and it sent out to uh, 60 different embassies at the time. 
but pr- pretty accurate, wouldn't you say? I mean, I think I think that does really sum up the highlights. By the way, in uh, the memo was written by a, a person P. Period Burris, just in case somebody is mm-hmm. hearing this and knows who is there. <laughs> Go back to we'll wrap this up by asking you uh, where you were, where you're from originally. Uh, I grew up in Glastonbury, Connecticut, uh, and we had the distinction of being one of the first towns in the U.S. after Sputnik. You know, the satellite was launched by the Soviets in the 1950s. Um, I always say it's thanks to Sputnik I learned Russian because. Uh, Apparently, Sputnik made people in the U.S. very worried that, like, wait, the Soviets must be smarter than we think, and we have no idea what they're up to. You know, like, we need to learn Russian. We need more Russian experts. Uh, And for reasons, you know, lost to time, my town volunteered to be one of the ones that tried out this new educational program, uh, and they still teach Russian today, starting in junior high school. How many people do you think know that there is a radio station in Washington, D.C. called Sputnik Radio, owned by the Russians? (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, Sputnik Radio and Russia Today, there's a, there's a lot of soft power um, from Russia, you know, aimed at Americans, um, let's say, trying to use persuasion uh, in a different way to make an impact in the world. Does it work? Well, I think we see that Putin is able to disrupt things. You know, we know that there's a lot of these, you know, trolls and bots and so forth that spread misinformation uh, in the West. And some of that definitely works and is definitely effective. But uh, I don't know that Putin is very good at shaping the overall image of Russia. Right. So I don't think you'd find too many people in the United States that would say, oh, Putin, yeah, he seems like a really, you know, wise, careful leader. Um, you know, he, he hasn't got that, you know, Stalin aura around him as far as, uh, you know, as far as Americans are concerned. But are people hearing, say, anti-vax messages that are being amplified by Russians? That I'm, I'm sure is the case. The name of the book is Moscow 1956, The Silent, Silenced, it's hard to say, Spring. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and, and our guest has been Georgetown University Professor Kathleen E. Smith. And I understand you go by the first name Kelly. Yes, I do. Thanks. And thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.